And now, coming to you live from Baltimore, Maryland, and the 2018 World Fantasy, Fantasy Convention, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest and longtime friend of the podcast, Andy Duncan, on the Good Street Podcast! And we're off. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> well, and you've, you've got a collection which I did not realize that uh, an agent of Utopia, first of all, Small Beer Press, another good friend of the podcast, uh, and it's the first American collection you've had in something like twenty years or almost. Um, when was when was the first collection out? Belutha Hatchet came out in two thousand, I believe. So yes, it's so, yeah. been eighteen years. This is my third fiction collection. The second one from uh, PS Publishing in the UK mm-hmm. was uh, the Potawatomi Giant and other stories. So yes, this is uh, this is my first. U.S. collection in uh, 18 years. It's also my first collection ever to have a paperback edition. Mm-hmm. The first ever to have an ebook edition. Uh, so I hope that it repays uh, Gavin Grant and Kelly Link and Small Beer's uh, support and enthusiasm. I hope it. I hope it does well for them. And there are news stories in it for people who. Do know your other collections? There are, there are indeed. Uh, the uh, first two stories in it uh, are uh, the first sixty-one pages. <laughs> uh, never, never before published. Two new novelettes: the the title story, "An Agent of Utopia," and the other one is titled uh, "Joe Diabo's Farewell." Although, as is the way of my writing career. Um, I'm getting emails and Facebook messages from people who were at conventions years ago mm-hmm. and say, like, is that the story about <laughs> because they Because I, I brought some shining fragment of something in progress uh, and read from it, and, and sure enough, it has evolved into, into these stories. Well, I have to say that as, since you've, you've read every year at the International Conference on the Fantastic, and I've heard this from any number of people, that once you've heard Andy Duncan read a story, you remember the story. And if you actually read it years later, you still remember Andy's voice. Well, this is, this is a good thing. Whatever, however we can distinguish ourselves <laughs> yeah. positively is a good thing, rather than all the people that distinguish themselves negatively. You know, That's like, true. You know, like running wild through the corridors or something. So how did Agent of Utopia come about? Because... I mean, unlike the Potawatomi Giant, unlike Luther Hatch and other stories, this really is some, something of a mix of the best of your career, right? I mean, that, the stories that go date back as far as Luther Hatch in the 1990s, yes, up to the two new stories. This is uh, this was uh, um, though I I had first contacted Gavin about how much I would like to work with them and how much I would like to do a small mm-hmm. press book. Uh, from there, Gavin was really sort of brainstormed this. And as Gavin put it to me, he had decided that it should not just be collection number three. It should not just have all the stories since mm-hmm. collection number two. That instead, because because Small Beer had uh, the ability to um, get the book distributed in multiple formats, in paperback, mm. in, e- in e-book, uh, because uh, Small Beer had the ability to get it widely reviewed, that this would mm. be a good opportunity 
to reach a lot of people that had never heard of me before, who had never been mm-hmm. to one of those readings at one of those conventions, who might not even have been on the circuit, you know, yeah. in, in the life, as we say. So he said for that reason, he would like there to be a couple of new stories, but that otherwise um, he suggested I make a selection from, the, the, from my previous work. And mm-hmm. just, uh, but there were some some caveats. For one thing, when when the two new stories I wrote turned out to be like a t- thirty pages long uh-huh. each, and there was a certain length for small beer collections that we had to meet, um, that sort of ruled out in most of the longer stories. Uh-huh. So there are a number of novelettes and novellas that I would have loved to get in just because they're mm. close to my heart. Of course, yeah. And, and, and there just wasn't room for them. But that's all right. As Jeff Ford and I were talking about at lunch, it's okay to have good stuff that's not in the collection, you know. Um, but uh, uh, things to include next time. Um, so with that in mind, I went through uh, uh, and looked at things that were award winners uh, or things that conversely I thought were not award winners or even not much discussed at the first time they were mm. published, but that I was particularly proud of. One, one of those, Jonathan, you were originally uh-huh. commissioned or responsible for, which mm-hmm. was Slow as a Bullet. Yep. which you included in, I think, the final volume yep. of the Eclipse yep. series, that wonderful uh, series you yep. did for Nightshade. And, uh, and I was always so proud of Slow as, uh, Slow as a Bullet, and I think, I think that whole volume and all of yeah. us in that volume mm-hmm. did not get the attention it should have yeah, because of publishing things that were happening yeah, uh, yeah, at absolutely. the time. And... Uh, so I was pleased to, to put it in, in, in having previously been uncollected. Um, but uh, but again, you know, if we had just gone on Andy's favorites, it would have been twice the size <laughs> or, or triple the size. I mean, I think one could certainly do a uh, a book of novellas from me, yeah. uh, the way you know Stephen King did with different seasons. But since I am not Stephen King, whether, any, whether anyone would take a risk on this, I do not know. Do you find that having had to boil your bibliography down to a selection of about 12 stories uh, gave you a different view of what you'd been doing or coalesced it for you or sharpened it in any way? It was certainly interesting to read through all these multiple times and to read through the others I was considering. Um, I joked online at, uh, at one point that, uh, that people who have the audacity to write books should be condemned to like reread them for all eternity. And then I said, oh, well, actually this happens because I had just finished, because I had just finished reading like the 12th, you know, proof or something. Uh, but as I was re- reading and rereading all these things, I was thinking about all the, the interesting like conversation going on that I did not expect at the time, but because all these things mm-hmm. come out of my own head, of course, yeah. they yeah. all have similarities, and I see uh, some of the same, same notes being hit in multiple places. Um, and... It, that was surprising. The, the thing I thought about the most was 
that as the reprints shook out, a great many of them were in like Southern voice mm. or that sort of storytelling, yarn spinning yeah. voice that that comes naturally to me, as you can tell, you folks hearing me <laughs> on the podcast. But that also I'm always, it's a fallback for me in my fiction, but also something I'm always trying to undercut in the fiction and like, you know, surprise people. Although the reprints were many of them in that voice, obviously the two new novelettes were not. Mm-hmm. One is one is from the point of view of the 1920s Mohawk steelworker, although he's looking back at the 1920s uh-huh. through some later years. So this may be 1940s possibly by then. Um, and the uh, and the title story is of course narrated in the formal letter sent back to the. Uh, to the Tranabors of Utopia, the land that Thomas More wrote about, and the uh, and the uh, um, it's the first person account of how the secret mission to London, to the Tower of London, went in the 16th century. The, the, the voice is a pretty authentic sounding 16th century voice. Well, well, one 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 would hope, or at least fakes it convincingly, which is the best you can do, and. Uh, I made a I made a point not to reread any of Greer Gilman's two, uh-huh. two novellas set in Elizabethan times, uh, which are brilliant because Greer actually knows how those <laughs> folks talk, talk and uh-huh. wrote prose and so forth, and I don't. But uh, but because those two novelettes were so not in my voice, I wondered: is there a discontinuity here? Uh, I, I really thought about that a lot. Should I take yeah. out some of the Southern voice things that are older and put in uh, some of the other modes that I've worked in mm-hmm. in there? Yeah. Would it be less uh, uh, less of a confusion? But I finally decided that uh, I finally decided that the uh, that it was fine yeah. to mm-hmm. to showcase in the new stories. That this was not all I do, folks, because yeah. I've always been at pains throughout my fiction career to show that I have multiple eras in the quiver. And I might add, too, that all this dithering was purely on my own part or with my long-suffering wife, Sydney, <laughs> because Gavin just said, send me a list. And I sent him the list, and I thought, surely he will make suggestions, amendations, take stories out, put stories in. And in fact, he simply accepted the list. (laughs) I sent him and thought it worked just fine. So so all this dithering was on my part and none of my editors. Well, when I was reading Agent of Utopia, my first reaction was exactly what you said. This doesn't sound at all like Andy Duncan. And and when is this going to turn into an Andy Duncan story? And I finally figured out the other thing, which is very characteristic is finding some really obscure corner of history and spinning a fable around that. And this, so this is really a story, I don't know if this is a spoiler, I apologize, but it's really a story about Thomas More's head. Yes. Uh, and once I read that, I'd read enough when I was studying literature to read, oh, remember that business about Thomas More's head, but I hadn't thought about it in <laughs> Right. And, 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 and in a way, that corner of history is as... Uh, characteristic of your fiction as well the other story the Joe Diablo story uh, there was a real movie I had to look this up all this stuff is real that movie was real that pageant he, because he and his other uh, other friends get involved in a kind of wild west pageant uh-huh. uh, associated with the premiere of a of a movie which apparently is now lost yes 
And last time I checked, it was okay. no, no, no prints are available. So the one thing, uh, when I was going through the collection, that struck me as being the least characteristic, the most surprising story in a very satisfying way, was the maps to the homes of the stars. Mm-hmm. Which, which is interesting, because I was... Who was I talking about earlier um, about that story? And I thought it was interesting that you singled that one out and said and uh, as the most personal of the pieces, because it is. From my perspective, mm-hmm. it is. Um, there is... Some of the things I am working on now are autobiographical in various ways. Mm-hmm. And that's something I'm increasingly interested in. In part, this is what happens when you're 54 as opposed to 34. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you think more about about uh, writing your own story than, yeah. than writing other people's mm-hmm. stories. But um, that particular, but but it's true that that has mostly not been what I've hit in my career. Mm-hmm. In fact, when I was starting out in part because I was starting out as a creative writing student in a graduate writing program Mm -hmm. where everybody was writing memoir all the time Mm -hmm. and and calling it fiction. I was just so aggressively delighted that I was writing about people utterly unlike myself (laughs) and utterly, you know, that seemed to have no, nothing in common. Um, the, The story that got me access into... Clarion West got me my application story that got me into Clarion mm. West in 1994 when Lucius Shepard and Eileen Gunn, I believe, were making all the mm-hmm. selections, was from Alfano's Reliquary, which is not in this collection, <laughs> but it was, the, it was about skullduggery in the medieval Vatican uh, mm-hmm. and uh, based on the, the cadaver, cadaver synod where the where the deceased pope was dug up and put on trial. Mm. And so my story was from the perspective of the guard who was des- there to make sure the corpse did not escape justice. Who <laughs> was guarding him every night in his cell. Uh, and and of course it was a comedy. And and I remember that I was working on this story uh, in with research volume stacked up all around me in my hometown library in Batesburg, South Carolina. Mm. And one of uh, my parents' friends, one of my friend, or one of my friend's parents, same thing, she came by to say hello because she knew I was in grad school. And she said, oh, what are you working on? So studiously. Yeah. And I happily told her what I just told y'all about the story. <laughs> and she looked just utterly mystified. <laughs> and, then, and she said, no, no, no. She said, that's not what you're supposed to write about. She said, you're supposed to write about yourself and your hometown and us. <laughs> and I said, how boring. Who would, who would want to read about that? And I think she was offended. But that was, that was generally my attitude. But now, mm-hmm. but now it's beginning to change. But at one point, I was uh, I was feeling blocked, as happens sometimes, mm-hmm. as I talk to all my, as I have talked to some of my Clarion and Clarion West students even here about. Mm-hmm. The block happens sometimes, and one way I decided to write my way out of this block was sit down and write something simply autobiographical. And my friend Richard O'Malley and I, he had the car, uh-huh. he had the nice car. Mm-hmm. And when we were 16, 17, we did just spend most of our lives just sort of driving aimlessly around 
Batesburg, South Carolina, <laughs> uh, sort of longingly driving past the houses <laughs> of, of, of these various young women that we were too nervous to talk to. With your soundtrack on the radio. With the sound, with the, right, right. With the, uh, with the, and, and that moment in the story when, when the driver says, take the wheel, and then just turns and rummages for a long time <laughs> in the tape deck yeah. while, while, while the passenger is steering, and this is just obviously something they always do. Yeah. We would actually do that, you know. But, uh, so I was just writing all this and was very happy. And, of course, a day into this, I start exaggerating it, and I start adding incidents and making up girls and, like, thinking about, okay, there, there really was an incident where uh, this girl we had just met I asked to drive the car, and I thought, no way is he going to agree. Uh-huh. And, of course, not, I did not reckon on hormones. <laughs> because he immediately said, yes, please drive my car, and off they went. And I was amazed. And so I exaggerate that and make that the climax of the story. So there I was writing fiction again. Mm-hmm. But I do think that compared to all those other stories, that's the one that's by far the most, like, memoir. And, and actually, maybe... Closer to the sort of thing I'm working on now, although I'm also working on plenty of bizarre historical fantasias mm. too, because that's I'll never leave that. That's I love it too much. Well, that's something that, that does that go back to the Batesburg Library. Your fascination with just finding odd bits of history. Um, it must. It must. Uh, as I uh, as I have told people in the past, there was this moment. I I I. I Thank God I was raised by readers. Mm. Yeah. My parents were very conservative people in many ways. I mean, yes, they voted for Reagan, but when I say conservative, I mean more better not uh, <laughs> than, yeah, than right. anything politically. They were like very... Uh, cautious. Very, yes, very cautious people. And uh, don't rock the boat. But uh, for all that, it, it is a daily marvel to me that at no point did they ever attempt to limit anything I was reading. Wow. Not at, yeah. not at any point. They did not they they did not require that it be all Christian or all Southern or all anything. Uh, and I remember as a young boy overhearing conversations in the next room where well meaning people would be murmuring to them, do you really think he should be reading that book or reading Mad Magazine or reading whatever I was, or whatever, that comic book, whatever it was. And I remember more than once hearing my parents basically speak in unison and saying, leave him alone, he's reading. <laughs> you know, as long as he's reading, you know, leave him alone, it's all right. And, uh, and so as a result, by the time I was 10... I had like 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 bush hogged through every children's book, every middle grade book, every what would now be called YA book in the public library. I had read them all four or five times. Did you have to get your dad or somebody to let you into the adult section? Well, then? there was a summit conference. <laughs> the, the librarians met with my mother while I looked on solemnly, and uh, Miss Connolly, who was the the tall red-headed woman who was more or less in charge of the circulation desk. And they basically told her, Andy has 
exhausted everything on that side of the mic. <laughs> it is time for Andy to go to the adult status. <laughs> and and uh, so there was some discussion over what adult book should he start with? What would be okay? Because mm-hmm. I guess they didn't want me going immediately to Jacqueline Suzanne <laughs> or whatever yeah. and, like, and like having early puberty. Right. But, but, uh, but they finally decided, among some other categories, they finally decided that science fiction would probably be okay. Because yeah. I was already a Star Trek fan and yeah. so forth, mm-hmm. and Twilight Zone. And so, and so I would walk the aisles with my finger trailing the spines until I found the little rocket, rocket ship. ship. Yeah. Yeah. So I was reading all the science fiction books, but I was also reading all the ghost story books and yeah. all the... You know, and a lot of murder mysteries, whodunits, Ellery Queens, right. and so forth. Yeah. P.G. Woodhouse, I got heavily into. But at what? But somewhere in there, I also found out they had this whole wall of like books about movies and entertainment and showbiz mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Broadway plays and biographies of musicians. And I was reading whole biographies of people I had never heard of, like <laughs> Phil Silvers and Marlena Dietrich, just a whole other generation's people. But that was all, to me, that was what lingered Well, I'm still obsessed with all those people and with show business. Mm. But I also now realize that this was developing this fascination with history that I didn't really oh, feel okay. so, yeah. that I didn't really feel in my classes. The other aspect there is that I was like I was reading about my parents' own lives. Because uh-huh. I was born to parents, Depression children, uh-huh. who were of the World War II generation, who were in their 40s when I was born in the 60s, uh-huh. which okay. was very, so the, very unusual age to be yeah. giving birth in those days. Yeah. And so being by far the youngest child, born to by far the youngest children in their families... Every every family gathering, people were talking about World War II and the Depression right. as if they had just happened. Yeah. And to my peers, this was like the stuff of dusty history. Uh-huh. But to me, it was not the stuff of dusty history at all. And I, and I have an anecdote about Aunt Willamay to tell in a minute. But for to finish uh-huh. this thought, so when I was reading about uh, the Marx Brothers, for mm-hmm. example, Joe Adamson's book, Groucho, Harpo, Chico, and Sometimes Zippo, yeah. It's still one of my favorite books. It was a revelation to me when I read I had never seen a Marx Brothers movie. But you, I had uh, never heard of the Marx Brothers, but I loved the title and the photo on the cover. And I read this whole book about old Hollywood and uh-huh. all what they were up to. And I recognized enough of it just from my parents' stories about yeah. old movies and old Hollywood. So I found all this personal connection in all this... All this Grab bags, like miscellaneous information. You're finding secrets about your parents' lives. That's right, it is. It was like a research project. Mm-hmm. And then simultaneously, I found that some of those books with the little rocket ship on them uh-huh. were supposedly nonfiction, but they were like about the Loch Ness monster <laughs> oh, and, UFOs, yeah. and chariots of the gods, you oh, know, okay, and, okay. and so forth. And so I got obsessed with all these supposedly true. What I now think of is Fortiana, you know, the Charles Forts, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, uncanny stuff. But that 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 too is a gateway to history, a gateway to how human beings act over different times and different cultures, even an entree into like you know odd pockets of science too. Well, and, that, and and you've got the collection, and the collection is Close Encounters, which is yes. again one of those characters. I was going to say in terms of voice, though. 
I think you modulated the voice pretty well because, as I recall, this guy was from Missouri, not from the Deep South. That's right. Yes. And he and I'm from Missouri, and mm-hmm. he he sounded like a Missourian. He did not sound like an this Alabama or South Carolina. This is good. Vance Randolph, Mark uh, Mark uh-huh. Wingenfeld, who is here. Years before I wrote this story, uh, when he, as a bookseller and a book collector, mm-hmm. whenever he buys up a lot and finds some stray things that he thinks might help me uh-huh. or that I might enjoy, he just, unasked, just mails them to me <laughs> or hands them to me next time he sees me. And he, he, he found a book that Vance Randolph assembled that's like a glossary of Ozark folklore. Yeah, he, he, he was the Ozark Yes, folklore he was the Ozark uh, folklorist. So he, it was this mid-century collection of a glossary of Ozark folk speech. Mm-hmm. And believe me, when I realized, when I knew I wanted to write Close Encounters, I, I read that book and yeah. made extensive notes <laughs> and made sure to put a lot of that stuff into Buck Nelson's mouth just to just to convince me, if nobody else. And just so people understand, Buck Nelson was a UFO abductee who I gather later came to regret the notoriety he achieved because yes. he put together these UFO festivals yes. and so forth and so on. Yes, and I think he got a, uh, obviously became sort of a laughing stock, I'm mm-hmm. afraid, and and then and then went into semi seclusion. And I really know nothing about the life of the actual Buck Nelson mm-hmm. later life, who died years ago. But uh, so I just like uh, I was reading the Fortean Times one month, and there was a big <laughs> cover story, a nostalgic feature on some of the most celebrated abductees of the fifties, who who all had happy stories of space brothers. Mm-hmm. You know, they all get yeah. name checked in there, Georgia Damsky, and so forth. Right, and they were all either like you know harmless nutcases or sincerely deluded uh-huh. <laughs> you know idealists or something but but uh, i was flipping through reading this happily and there was like a few paragraphs about the ozark farmer buck nelson and uh-huh. there was a photo of him in his overalls you know standing <laughs> standing in his yard and i immediately thought okay i know buck nelson <laughs> i grew up with buck yeah, nelson I, know. I, I can't identify with all these californians but him i can identify with and the whole story came from that. That was basically the extent of the research. That in Vance Randolph's glossary. Mm. There's also an aspect to the story that, and, and this is some some of these obscure bits of history are associated with with things that most science fiction writers are embarrassed to be associated with. I mean, back in the fifties, for example, people like Asimov just went up the wall when yes. they were reading these George Adamski things. Yes, and the the science fiction mainstream is kind of wanted to shove off in the corner the fact that there was yes. a kind of cultural connection. And in another way, uh, in, in a, more, a more recent story, which we talked about on a previous podcast about John W. Campbell, uh, that's a part of history which uh, I think a lot of science fiction historians would rather forget that whole part of Campbell's yes. life. Yes, And that's that's what interests me also, is that there's a lot of the historian in you, and actually I said this, I, I said this in a review you haven't seen yet because it's in the Tribune, that there's your your kind of expertise as a historian and cult and scholar of science fiction informs these stories, even though most of them aren't science fiction at all. Mm-hmm. I think I think you, uh, John Castle loves to say you write about what bothers you, <laughs> uh, and maybe and maybe one of the things that bothers me is the way, and not just science fiction, people, uh-huh. but everybody, all of us, humanity. 
the way we like arbitrarily divide up our experiences mm. and say, okay, now we're talking about religion, and now we're talking about art, and now we're talking about politics, and yeah. now we're talking about gender. Uh-huh. But in fact, we're talking about all the same things, you know. Yeah. And it and and while there is a necessary classification system in which we have to have discussions occasionally, yeah. Yeah. because if you're if you're talking about uh, you're, if you're talking about an amoeba, you have to talk about other you know right mi- uh, microscopic creatures in <laughs> yeah, that yeah, class, yeah. and not immediately about giraffes and and, yeah. and wildebeests, but but there's also a point where you have to like get over the classification well, yeah. and, realize, and realize that this thing that you're talking about in this area is also pertinent to this other area. Um, I think just as it's wrong to make these xenophobic distinctions between peoples, the us and the them, mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's I think it's dangerous to make these arbitrary, to me, increasingly arbitrary distinctions between uh, uh, the data and the damned data, as Charles <laughs> would call it. You know, because because let us let us assume that there is no objective reality to the person that believes their sincerely believes their house is haunted because they hear noises in the attic sometimes. Mm. Okay. Because we can think of 10,000 non-supernatural explanations for those noises in the attic. Uh, call it exterminator, etc. But mm-hmm. why do so many people in so many cultures hear that noise in the attic and come up with that story that it's actually yeah. their ancestors or uh-huh. their grandparents yeah. Yeah. Or, the, or the Civil War soldier or whoever? You know, why do we do that? I mean, even, even if the professed explanation may not have what we consider factual validity, the fact that the explanation is offered is itself a fascinating fact, and one that Mm -hmm. if we're not talking about that and thinking about that, if we're just walking away from the whole subject, I think we're missing out on a lot of human psychology, sociology, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a big digression for you. I guess, no, there's a tolerance in your fiction, that's an odd word to use, maybe. Yes. Um, but uh, one of the stories that m- got most discussed among literary people, because you you do write uh, elusively about people who are not ne- characters who are not necessarily familiar to science fiction readers. I mean, Robert Johnson or or, or, or certainly um, Zora Neale Hurston, and the one I'm thinking about is the uh, Flannery O'Connor story. Mm-hmm. Which is again an actual historical thing. Which, as you pointed out to me years ago, you can still find that film of the chicken on, <laughs> yes. on somewhere on YouTube. But it really turns out to be a story about this priest, and it would be very easy to make this a kind of anti-priest story where right. he. Looked, but instead, you're dealing with his actual crisis of faith, um, which I yeah. think is really um, what makes the story very moving. And it, from a traditional science fiction approach to that, it would be, ah, I'm Flannery O'Connor and you're not, and you're just a priest. But no, here's a guy who seriously was trying to deal with a chicken named Jesus Christ. Right. Because, cause, and, and, and I, gen- I, genuinely, I genuinely don't remember... When I, why I decided the chicken's name was Jesus because I don't think <laughs> yeah. there's any evidence for that anywhere. Okay. I think I think the uh, 
I think as so often that the 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 seed of that story was somebody calling about an anthology that I wound up being too slow to get into. <laughs> but at one point, Michael Bishop was putting together an anthology that I believe t- wound up titled A Cross of Centuries. Oh, there was going oh, yeah. to be an anthology about stories about Jesus or mm-hmm. alternate Christ, okay. alternate stories yep. about... and which is the sort of fascinating theme that only yeah. Michael Bishop would come right. up with. Yeah. And, but I had had this Flannery O'Connor idea in my head for a while, and if any writer was ever obsessed with Jesus and with mm-hmm. the nature of grace, it was Flannery O'Connor in our time. And in, in ways that I certainly... Viewpoint I do not share, but her stories fascinate me and, and mm-hmm. literally compel me. Yeah. Because, again, I recognize these people. I know exactly who she's yeah. writing about. And she always gets labeled like a a miss a misanthrope, but I think that no, I think there's a lot else going going <laughs> well, on there. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but at some point, because Mike had made this suggestion, I got to thinking, well, maybe maybe the uh, maybe the chicken is Jesus. Uh, <laughs> how is the chicken Jesus? And then I went into my father's Bible concordances and was finding all the scriptures that might might involve poultry or so forth. And a little of that gets in. And by that point, I had decided that it would be, you know, rather than do what I considered an impossibility and write from the point of view of the child Flannery, uh, Mary Flannery, Mm -hmm. uh, that that some outsider to the household should be the onlooker, Mm -hmm. you know. And I thought, well, you know, obviously it was a very Catholic household. Yeah. They would, of course, call the priest, you know, come right. talk, mm-hmm. come talk to Mary. And then the priest just sort of welled up out of me. I just completely <laughs> sympathized <laughs> with this with yeah, this poor exactly. guy. <laughs> and also that uh, the 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 happy bishop, the fatuous bishop, the sort of chamber of commerce yeah. guy that he works for. Um, does his rant about how you, uh, um, there's a there's a passage in there about uh, how often you get served chicken or so forth? Oh yeah, but that was yeah. that was based on a rant that Strom Thurmond gave us when he, he came to my school when I was a teenager <laughs> and gave us a happy speech about his life in politics and complained, oh, that's and complained about all the chicken he had had to eat. <laughs> so. But but yeah, I just I just completely identified with that priest, uh-huh. and I and and I never liked this. Even as I mean, I was raised religious, but even as I have grown away from anything that the religious folks of my neighborhood would mm-hmm. consider religious at all, even as I was moving away from that, I got increasingly resentful of sort of the glib stereotype, particularly in science fiction. That if yeah. a religious person comes in, they're going to be an abusive fanatic and so forth. Granted, it is easy to make that association <laughs> well, in 2018. Yeah. Uh, and we record this a few days before <laughs> the general election. I can see the many problems there, but I also know a lot of religious people, and not just from Christian traditions, uh-huh. but Muslim, Jewish, pagan, you know, uh, Rastafarian, sure. uh, who. For whom uh, it, their 
their faith does not lead them in these directions. And as Michael Bishop likes to say, he, he, he thinks his religion gives him no answers at all, but a much better set of questions <laughs> to ask, which I think is exactly the right way to look at it. So, so it never occurred to me I was doing anything particularly transgressive with the priest. I just thought, well, I'd be just as at a loss as he was. Because what do I know from kids? I don't have kids myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, in the ki- so even when my students, who are 20, are acting oddly in front of yeah. me, I don't really know how to deal with that either. I just gaze upon them and <laughs> hope it works out. Well, when we're talking about... Michael Bishop is a good connection because in a way his Georgia stories are in the same yeah. kind of tradition as, uh, as your stories are. And it's a tradition which is... It's hard to trace in science fiction. I mean, you can trace it back to Mark Twain easily enough. I mean, by Mark Twain, I'm talking about the celebrated jumping frog or the mysterious stranger, those right. kind of uh, odd stories. And even people like Stephen Vincent Benet, who nobody reads anymore. Um, and But th- these were all people that were verging into the fantastic yes. and at the same time writing in this vernacular tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and Howard Waldrop is, before you, I guess, maybe one of the prime examples mm-hmm. of that. And he's still working as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a voice which, like I say, in, in some Theodore Sturgeon stories, I yep. think, it's a voice which is there throughout the history of science fiction, yes. but it's never been a, a river. It's never been a No, fort. no, it's never. It's, it's always been this sort of odd tributary. Yeah. Um... And, and, oh, how important it was for me um, when I was first seriously writing fiction in grad school as John Kessel's student at, mm-hmm. at NC State University, uh, where, where one of my other professors was Lee Smith, the, the, mm-hmm. the Southern novelist um, uh, whose work I love and was a big influence on me. And I like to say at the time, you know, that I just write what you would expect uh-huh. if you're two, like, mentors at the time. One <laughs> yeah, was right. John Kessler and one was Lee Smith. It's just uh, clearly they're the same, and you just put that yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, um, but uh, oh, what a, what a consolation it was for me to find out there was this thread, that there were a lot of Southerners in science fiction uh-huh. That would like uh, occasionally, at least, you know, deal with material that was familiar to me from what I had grown up and so forth. Mm-hmm. But I was also, uh, you know, like the Howard Waldrop and Terry Bisson mm-hmm. and and so forth. But 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 simultaneously, I was in all these graduate seminars where I was reading Faulkner, yeah. who often gets extremely bizarre and strange <laughs> and 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 gothic in all sorts of directions. And Zora Neale Hurston, who is just this right. like sort of almost that moment in their eyes were watching God when they, they, they is it the mule or the cow, I forget, that dies and they drag it out into the field oh, yeah. and leave it. And then the and then the human characters walk away and all the uh, the, the, the buzzards and the crows mm. descend and they begin to talk and they have a funeral service for the <laughs> yeah, right. for the livestock before they eat it. You know, this like page, and then you go back to the, the humans, and you think, what what just happened there? But that's like this almost pristine, like magic realist moment, except to her it's not magic realism. It's not by way of Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Right. It's just the way you would tell the story, you yeah. know, back in Edenville, Florida, or whatever. Yeah. Well, you know, where, where, 
where the whole the whole landscape was somehow animate, and everybody yeah. realized that, you know, whether they were religious or not. There is, well, there's a similar scene in As I Lay Dying, the Faulkner thing, The Flood. Yes. It's a mm-hmm. famous novella with a chapter, that one-sentence chapter, My Mother is a Fish. Yeah. And I thought, <laughs> I read that and I thought, I'm getting into fantasy and science fiction area here, even though I'm not. Right, the, the, yes. And, and so there was yeah. always that. And, and even even hard SF writer like Gregory Benford will talk about his Alabama childhood oh, and how much he grew up with this sort of thing. And I talked to him at Worldcon, and his accent started coming back, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so forth. Um, so I was reading all those things, and I joke about John and, and, and Lee, but it really did seem to me that all this stuff I was reading though it was being very published at very different times and very different mm-hmm. venues, had a lot more in common than most people were willing to, uh, to concede. And I wrote one of my grad school papers that I think I wrote for John, I can't remember who I wrote it for, that wound up getting published in Foundation and reprinted recently in Children's Literature Review, mm. um, uh, was about Murray Leinster. Was about Will Jenkins uh-huh. who wrote, uh, and, and and the ways you could read him as a Southern writer because hmm. he was from yeah. Tidewater, Virginia. Yeah. And I just picked one story as an example, which was the famous uh, uh, what's the t- is it Sideways in Time? Sideways the, in the famous oh. Time Storm yeah. story, right. um, which is why they call it the Side Sidewise Sidewise Award. Right. Yeah. Yes, um, but but uh, and I just went through. It's just a close reading uh-huh. about you know. All the ways that you know, all these Faulkner, Faulknerian yeah. and preoccupations keep showing up throughout yeah. the story, but because it's published as a science fiction story, you know, nobody ever talks nobody about it, it as a southern text. Because, uh, as a uh, as Terry Bisson likes to say, of like the southern literature industry. With the um. you know Southern Writers Conference and so forth, <laughs> right. Terry Bisson like told me once years ago. He says those blankety blanks never invite me, <laughs> you know, because there's just no conversation there. And but for me in my head, there was a hell of a lot of conversation. Oh yeah, I'm and sure. there still is, and it's coming out in all my stuff that I wrote. Did doing the anthology Crossroads with Brett Cox yes inform the way you thought about? I think it. I think it did. I think it had, because poor. Uh, that was that was a fascinating project, and poor Brett did the lion's share of all the work. Mm. Uh, uh, I, I think I, I think I arrogantly at the time, uh, fancied that uh, that there would be some some Marty Greenberg figure to like put all the actual, <laughs> yeah. you know the. the the, the, the person that actually did all the contracts and so yeah, forth yeah, for all right. those anthologies all those years. We didn't have a Marty Greenberg, so while uh-huh. I was floating around, you know, in the Empyrean realms, thinking theoretically about what we included, it, it was poor Brad who was doing most of the, of, the, of the work on the book. But we are very proud of it. Yeah, it came yeah. out really well, mm-hmm. and we, 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 we made it hard for ourselves in a lot of respects. Like, we wanted to have both original stories and mm-hmm. reprints, which doubles the trouble. Mm-hmm. And, and we wanted to outreach not only to science fiction, fantasy people, but to mainstream people and yeah. so forth. And, but what we wound up with was, I think, a 
pretty a really good book with some remarkable pieces in it. Uh, Bud Webster's Christus Destitutus talk about an alternate mm. Jesus story, yeah. and and no one had asked Bud Webster to like <laughs> do this sort of ambitious thing before. Um, and he really and and Scott Edelman's Randy Newman story mm-hmm. and the and oh just I could just name everybody in the book, but uh, but at the time uh, the original commissioning publisher went. Uh, collapsed. I almost said went south, which would be, which would be <laughs> too bad as a phrase. Uh, but collapsed, went under, uh, and it was uh, Sean McCarthy who shopped it around and got it to, mm-hmm. to tour. But uh, we, I, I've always joked that I suspect it was the poorest selling book in the history <laughs> of tour. Uh, and uh, however, through the years. People keep reading the thing, or mm-hmm. keep stumbling upon uh-huh. it, or finding it in the used market or something. And more than one young writer has come up to me and said, "I read that anthology, and it gave me inspiration, and it okay. made me realize that even though I am whatever from Florida, from Texas, from the Pacific Northwest, you know, even though I'm more interested in the folklore end of things than I am the high-tech end of things. Yeah. They nevertheless gave me courage to uh-huh. write my own stuff or aim myself. It's, so it's that's nice, good. Yeah, it's nice when a book kind of reappears. There's a famous quotation from David Lindsay, the least successful fantasy writer ever. That Even though his best-selling book was 600 copies, he said that... <laughs> So, and, and, and his subsequent novels sold fewer than that. That <laughs> right. was a That was that right. right. That was, but he said that some, I, there may never be more than a couple of people a year, but there'll be a couple of people a year reading my books from now on. And he's turned out to be right. Yes. Turns out A Voyage to Arctis was never out of print. And I was thinking about this because when I was reading the collection, I was looking at Belutha Hatchie, which I haven't read in many years. And it's one of your early stories. Mm-hmm. And yet it occurred to me every couple of years I hear about it. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's because there's a kind of Robert Johnson thing that waxes yeah. and wanes. Mm-hmm. Uh, every time somebody starts talking about different versions of hell, that mm-hmm. comes up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that must be a kind of gratifying sense that that story just keeps sort of bobbing to the surface. It's, ex- it's extremely gratifying. I mean, that any of my stuff ever gets read by anybody is a marvel to me, <laughs> that anybody publishes it. But... Uh, uh, but uh, Belutha has gotten reprinted a number of times, mm. you know, in various themed books and so forth. Just a quick question about that, which is trivial, because you're you're not ashamed to use <coughs> real names, Zora Neale Hurston, and we've talked about it. Right, right. And you'd never named Robert Johnson in no, that story. No, isn't I, and I that was and I, the first draft of that story was written was literally typed. On mm-hmm. Eileen Gunn's magic typewriter, <laughs> the typewriter that she lent me because she said when I arrived in Seattle, because she said that it was the magic typewriter in which she had typed her first published fiction. Mm-hmm. So it was it was almost the typewriter on which I typed my first published fiction because it, <laughs> believe that she was the first story I sold to Gardner Desbois at Asimov, mm-hmm. and by the time it came out, another story had preceded it into print, mm-hmm. but. Uh, but while I was sitting there banging away at that typewriter in the evening, I knew that this was a Robert Johnson story. Mm-hmm. But I was also determined 
not to call him Robert Johnson. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember why. I mean, I, 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 I was fascinated by all the mythic Johns. Mm. Well, yeah, Robert Johnson right, yeah. has John right in the middle, mm-hmm. and there's John the Baptist and High John oh, the Conqueror okay. and so forth, yep. and, I, and Johnny Appleseed. And it was like, sort of like John is this sort of... Uh, there's this long tradition of John as like this substitute name for man, you know, like, <laughs> sort of like the literally every man. Right. And I just decided to do that. But then I didn't like do anything else to differentiate his story from Robert Johnson's. Right. And the music life. is all the song. And the music and the song is all. Right. And uh, and I I workshop that manuscript during Lisa Goldstein's uh, week, and I, Lisa told me later. That she was reading this and got to the the song that, that I had written lyrics uh-huh. for yeah. the song he writes at the what I consider the climax. That seems and, yeah. and and she said she called home and her husband was a blues guitarist and musician mm-hmm. and she said you know is this is this a real song and he says no but he was playing back to her and he said, it works <laughs> yeah, it has, okay. and it has that rhythm and she said okay. Uh, one of my stories that's sort of a hidden musical. I, I was going to say music's kind of important in your stories because you've got that story, the Big Rock Candy Mountain is a song. You've found the prison airs, this prison singing group, which... I, so, so there are a lot of songs, and even in the uh, the, the, the new story, the um, Joe Diabo story, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on the title. Joe Diabo's Farewell. Uh, yeah, uh, even that involves music in the in the pageant. And so that's forth. true. Is music true. a big thing in your fiction? It's a big thing in my life, increasingly. Ah. And I think one thing that fa- I'm fascinated by all artists, no matter whether it's anything I have a talent for or not, or anything <laughs> I do or not. I mean, this goes back to being a child and reading those behind-the-scenes yeah, showbiz yeah. books. Like, wow, how a movie got made. Uh-huh. You know, how this show got written or staged. Um, and and increasingly, I am realizing the extent to which music is important to me. Most uh, the and the old, particularly the old scratchy old recordings, you uh-huh. know, the the so-called yeah. race records yeah. and hillbilly records, right. the 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 anthology of American folk music stuff, you right. Know? Yeah. But also all sorts of pop music, and my students have got me interested in aspects of hip hop, you know, and electronica and all these things. But and one one reason I, I love Sarah Pinsker's work so much and she is brilliant is that she is a musician as well as mm-hmm. a fiction writer. Yeah. And she writes so well about music and the act of making music and so forth. But uh, so it it has showed up throughout, you know, there mm-hmm. uh, I just one one book that I always invoke to people as evidence that you can do anything if the circumstances mm. are right is John M. Ford's Star Trek novel <laughs> uh, from Pocket back in the was yeah. it the 90s yeah. which was How Much for Just the Planet was the title <laughs> yeah. where, where the Federation and the is it the Klingons or the Romulans are, dicker- are dickering uh, the enemies are like go to this backwoods planet to like negotiate for the mineral rights, basically yes. because there's some you know magic uh-huh. you know, mineral that yeah. is there that everybody needs. But the whole novel is written as a parody of a Gilbert and Sullivan <laughs> opera, and so everywhere Kirk and Spock and the others go, 
people are like staging musical numbers for them, uh-huh. and they're like all the songs are written out, and and, and Ford like Ford, Ford describes the choreography of the dancers and so forth while they're sitting there bemused. And this goes on for chapter after chapter. I just thought this is the best Star Trek novel <laughs> that could ever be written. You know, and it'll never be filled, but I wish it would. Later, when uh, Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog yeah. and the musical version of Buffy is something very similar to that. Yeah. But, but I mean, you know, I've never done something to that extent. But, uh, but I like to throw. Yeah. I like to write a song every now and then and throw it in there because I realized when I was writing Blue Lanchy that I had no idea of the copyright uh, yeah. the things and I didn't want to get in a George R. R. Martin problem yeah. of like, you know, quoting things and then having to pay a lot of money to ASCAP. So I decided it was easier just to write my own lyrics <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I at least knew I owned them. So. Yeah, I've, I've read stories of movies that can't ever be released simply because of the music rights. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of... But I, the, the thing about the... I'm fascinated about your childhood library because I've, I've developed this theory from talking to a lot of writers uh, about... This is the story of having to go into the... Uh, to fight to get into the adult section. It's a fairly common story. But there's also the idea that all small-town libraries are magic places because you're... It seems like every piece of information in the world is there when you're a kid. Yes. And there's a, I got an argument with John Crowley, who wrote a beautiful story that dealt with small-town libraries called The Girlhood of Shakespeare's Heroines, mm-hmm. which has no fantasy in it at all, mm-hmm. except it deals with a couple of kids who get involved with the Baconian heresy who wrote Shakespeare's <laughs> right, yes. And they go to their local library, and all the stuff in Oxford University Library is there for them to consult. And I said, yes. that's a magic library, because... Yeah. When you're a kid, the library contains everything. Yeah, right, that's and true. you don't know that there are better libraries That's anymore. true. Now, there's a, there's a good example of literary scholarship shading into the woo-woo and uh, over into yeah. a whole other, like, paranormal realm, right. you know, and also a whole, like, cla- class-based uh, political realm mm. because, you know, too much of this has the tone of, like, how could this commoner possibly right. have written... All this stuff and so forth, but uh, but yeah, that's a that's a great story, and and there are a lot of library stories. Yeah, obviously not Borges and Crowley and Ellen Clayton is in the House of the Seven Librarians, right? Where where the the librarians each have a specialty <laughs> yeah. that is important to raising this child, and it, and it leaves you convinced that that uh, that a library would be a pretty mm-hmm. good place to raise a kid. And indeed, I was largely raised in that library. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Because because uh, even from when I was pretty young, my parents knew they could just park me there. And I would yeah. happily read for, for hours until they came and got me. And the librarians would, you know, bring me a Coke every <laughs> and, and, and look out for me. Uh, yeah. Is the library still there? It is still there. Wow. Yes, it is. It's no longer the... County headquarters library, uh-huh. but it's one of the branch libraries now, um, and uh, yeah, and it's largely the same layout as when. It was one of those old Carnegie Gothic column things when he painted. No, it is not? not. No, it it, it was uh, built brand new, like in the sixties. Ah, okay. so. In fact, I remember the previous library, which was a retrofitted, rented space in like an old house mm-hmm. on one of the main streets of town. Uh, and where every everything was uh, was was cramped, and you know, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and and this, and there was a fundraising drive, and this library was built new, which 
means it's still in use mm-hmm. after all these decades. Yeah. But it was just basically this boxy brick building yeah. <laughs> across from the armory, you know, and in view of the cemetery. So, uh-huh. um, well, I, we're kind of getting towards the end of the hour. Mm-hmm. So with Agent of Utopia freshly out, with the third Perlene story just out in Garden of Lost, The Book of Magic. The Book of Magic, mm-hmm. yes. Brand new. With uh, New Frontiers of the Mind in you know, the June, June or July issue of Analog. Yeah, uh, July-August issue July of August Analog. Analog. That's right. Yep. It seems like a reasonable question to ask, what's next? Well, what's next is I've got a short story titled Mr. Percy's Shortcut that is in this upcoming anthology from Parvis Press that Cat Rambo edited, uh-huh. titled If This Goes On, which is designed to be explicitly political stories uh, the go- uh, about current trends extrapolated into yeah. the near future, <laughs> uh, the target audience being all the members of the U.S. House and Senate and the Oval Office. <laughs> so when this comes out, I think uh, the publisher is going to be sending copies up there. Uh, and my story is not overtly political, but it is. A, it, I decided to write one of the happier stories in the book. Yeah. So it's sort of a utopian Appalachian mm. uh, family story. Of course, it's all about death. That's what happens when I sit down to write a happy story. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I've also got a novelette um, about another music-based story about. Mm-hmm. Uh, a fantasia about the banjo musician and pioneering country music singer Charlie Poole, except this is mm-hmm. Charlie as a youngster uh, and how he acquires... Well, if there's a lot of banjo playing... And there's another devil, and there's a lot of, uh-huh. and there's a lot, and there's a lot, and the wreck of the old '97, and a lot of, a lot yeah. of, a lot of. There's, there's yeah. a, uh, it's, a, it is a recognizable Andy Duncan story, <laughs> and it is coming out in Asimov uh, in the, I believe, the September October issue that Sheila Williams tells me is the supernatural Ooh. issue, oh, is cool. the Halloween issue For next year. That's next year. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, Plus other things I'm working on, and who knows when they will be finished. I mean, I, I look really prolific right now, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and it's great to have all this stuff out this year and the stuff coming out next year that I know about already. Uh, oh, I'll, uh, but uh, but everybody everybody you've ever had on the show knows how this goes. You know, yeah. you work on things year after year after year, and then without warning. They all wind up getting published simultaneously <laughs> right, through right. none of your doing. <laughs> and some people say, "Damn, that Duncan, he's a machine." <laughs> you know, and you get this undeserved reputation, right. which eventually it sorts out. <laughs> but I need, but I promised an Aunt Willamay story, so I need to tell you this. Oh yeah, damn. When, about and 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 this is about this is about how recent history is. Mm-hmm. Because I was an adult, I was living away from home, I was working yeah. a newspaper job in the uh, 80s, and I went back home for a long weekend, got sort of bored wa- uh, watching mm. Braves games with my parents, <laughs> and saw that there was going to be a Civil War reenactment of the Battle of Aiken in Aiken, South Carolina, mm-hmm. about 20 miles down the road. So I went over there one Saturday, ambled around uh, out of curiosity. 
Um, but when I walked in, they handed me a program that had a, a period photograph of a soldier on the front, mm. and it identified the soldier as Private Lovett, Jor- Lovett Jordan, G-O-R-D-A-N, C-S-A, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. It was a young Confederate soldier, yeah, yeah. a period photo. And I knew it was pronounced Jordan and not Jordan because there were Jordans in my family, oh, <laughs> in my mother's okay. family. So I just glanced at this and thought, I wonder if I'm related yeah. to this guy. And as I was leaving, they were packing up and there were extra programs. I said, mm. can I have some extras? Sure, they said. And so I got home to North Carolina where I was living at the time. I wrote my the matriarch of the family. I wrote my Aunt Willamay, mm-hmm. who was in her 80s at the time, about 90. And I sent her a copy of this. Mm. And I wrote her and just said, saw this and wondered if it was any of our people. And mm-hmm. uh, hope all's well. <laughs> you know, no, et cetera. Signed Andy. Love Andy. A few days later, she writes me back in her impeccable... Uh, if, you, if you want to know the, the British version of my Aunt Willamay, Maggie Smith. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. okay. All right, so I get this impeccable linen, you know, stationery, you know, right. with all the engraved, the per- impeccable handwriting in reply. You know, I was so glad to hear from you. Thank you so much for sending that program. I remember Uncle Love very well. Oh, really? <laughs> he never talked about the wars. <laughs> then went on to tell me these anecdotes because his life had overlapped with hers. Wow! Like a decade or so, because he was such he was like a teenager at yeah. the time of the war. Yeah. And I thought then, okay, this isn't history. Yeah. This is like this is living memory that we're yeah. talking about, mm-hmm. and this is this is this is what keeps you awake at night mm. because that which was yesterday could be tomorrow, yeah. right? Right. We're, we, we think we're so far past these things and we are not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we're just in this ent- brief interregnum in between. So, as Kessel says, you write about what bothers you. So I keep writing about yeah. all, you know, I keep writing about all this past, but is it how past is it, really? Well, back to Faulkner again. Right, exactly. <laughs> the, the, it's not dead. It isn't even past. And on that, that note, with the convention beckoning us all, mm-hmm. I suspect, thank you, Andy, for making the time. Thank you so much really for having me. And as to you, Gary, I'll talk to you again next time. Yes. Until then, this has been the Coot Street Podcast. <laughs>